0: Well, good morning, my friends. It is the first week of Easter, and it's Wednesday morning, so we are in Bible study. Today we're going to be doing Revelation chapter 18. We're actually going to begin a little bit with the end of 17, because I didn't finish it last week. Um, and then we'll get to 18 and go all the way through today. I'm glad you are here. Let's do a little bit of housekeeping first, a reminder that I'd love for you to join our email list. Visit stmichael.org slash rbs. Send Meredith Rose an email and she can add you to our list. And in addition to that, there is a podcast now of this Bible study. Search for Rector's Bible Study wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you don't watch live or wish to watch the video at all, the audio is now available in that really easy to use format. I've heard from a number of people who have said they love to kind of go out walking or in the car and do this Bible study. And so now the podcast is available for you. And I hope that it makes this all easier. A reminder that I love questions and comments. So please ask your questions or make your comments if you are watching on a social media platform. And especially if you are on a social media platform, say hello to the people who are here. Let us know you are here because it's great to remain connected to this community even while we are almost, almost finished with our sort of separation and quarantine and social distancing, at least like it is now. Hopefully we'll get back to some semblance of reconnection in our physical space. Um, Very soon, fingers crossed, get your vaccine, it'll help. All right, finally, a reminder that I'd love to hear from you about what you might like to study in the Rector's Bible study next school year. So we started Genesis last year, we did Daniel at the beginning and then Revelation this year. Next year, we don't have anything on tap. And so I'd love to hear from you what it is that either you've studied in the past, would like to study again, maybe something you've never studied and are really interested to know more about. I've gotten some great suggestions, so keep them coming. And hopefully by the end of this month, before our last lesson in the first week of May, we will be able to announce what we're going to be studying next year. All right, let's jump in with a prayer and we'll get started. Let us pray. God, we come to you today with grateful hearts, grateful for the gift of your Son, the gift of love in the world, and for resurrection that defeats death itself. Fill the hearts and minds of all those you have gathered here, hoping to study and learn from your word throughout time, that we may be filled, inspired, and transformed by the work that you have done and continue to do through those who follow you. May this time together lift us up and help us to become the hands and feet of love in the world you created us to be. God, we give you thanks for the gift of this life, for the gift of love, and that mystery that surrounds us on all sides, and today we especially lift up those who are sick, those who are hurting and in pain, those who are near death. May our prayers lift them up. May our actions help to remind them of your love. And may we all remain mindful of the sacred promise you make that what we see in this world is not all there is and that the promise of eternal life with you is very real. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, let's get rolling. Last week... We had a very interesting question that came from John about the idea of sinfulness. And that question was based on a historic consideration of the Ten Commandments and the way that they helped to shape Judaism. Then, of course, as Christians, we have received that tradition and how it shapes us as we consider what amounts to the judgment against sin that we see in Revelation. So I'm going to make that little note. We're going to get to that idea as we flesh out the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18 together. So if you've been wondering about this whole sin and judgment, I've received a couple questions from people asking about you know the judgment and the plagues and the pain. Are God's followers also suffering through That judgment and pain. And so there's a lot of questions mixed up around the idea of this judgment, and we will absolutely get to that this week. Um, I ended last week discussing the idea of Babylon tied to Rome, the woman who is on the beast, and what she represents, and ultimately, we're gonna get to her destruction. Um, And so, as a kind of reminder of where we ended last week at the end of chapter 17, I want us to stay very focused and clear about Revelation not being literal. You know, we've talked about this many times. Revelation is symbolic, perhaps even metaphorical. And as we consider Babylon, and of course in chapter 18, the fall of Babylon, I want us to be clear in our minds that this is, I've said it before, not predictive. Revelation is not meaning to predict the future. It's not an oracle. It's more about a vision of truth. And that vision of truth is very much grounded in a fundamental, you might even say cosmic truth, that there is good and evil in the world. We in our human brokenness are attracted to evil and yet God calls us to the good, calls us to live lives of love. And it's that choosing life, a life of love every day that keeps us moving forward on a path toward God and toward God's truth. That's really what Revelation is all about. And acknowledging that the world is hard, we will, as people of the world, go through a lot of pain and heartbreak and struggle, and yet... God does not leave us in that pain. God's promise of redemption takes us out of that pain and moves us into a redeemed reality of love, eternal goodness with God in the future. Revelation is a story about that promise, a promise that may not be realized today, but a promise that is true nonetheless. So if we jump back into chapter 17, I want to start with the end of the section where the woman is on the beast. We're going to look at verse 12 of chapter 17, um, parse this out just a little bit more because I do think there's some good stuff here at the end of chapter 17 I don't want to miss. So turn on back, chapter 17. We're going to start with verse 12. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are united in yielding their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So, this is one more phase of the unifying evil that we see kind of coalescing and centering themselves under the umbrella of Babylon. What is happening here in chapter 17 is we've pivoted away from the plagues that encouraged um, encouraged what might I say, a repentance. Um, when we were talking about the bowls of wrath and the plagues, there is a very clear sense that Things get worse before they get better. And as things get worse, there are moments when we are reminded of God's goodness. We are given opportunities for redemption, a turning toward God. That kind of repentance, that return toward God, has basically ended at this point in chapter 17. In other words, we have... (laughs) gotten to the point when the evil is so great that the moments, uh, opportunities of repentance are sort of over. And instead, what is happening is that people are completely anchored in the evil or completely anchored in the good. And those who are completely anchored in the evil are coalescing around the core representation of evil on earth, which is Babylon, the beast, that antichrist that we know about in Revelation because the promise of the world is so seductive. I want us, as we look at the end of 17 and into 18, to try to get to a real place of honesty, a place of vulnerability within ourselves where we don't hold the idea of Revelation at arm's length. Let me say that differently. I think it's easy for us with our own healthy egos to read Revelation as a story of good people and bad people. And the bad people are really bad, and they're so much worse than we would ever be. And so we are obviously good people, right? And these blatantly bad people are getting what they deserve. Revelation's not meant to help us identify whether we are good or bad. Revelation is not really meant for us to say, look at us. We are so good. We are the good people. That's not really what's happening here. Instead, Revelation is meant to articulate the complexity of our human condition. We are neither all good or all bad. We are both. We talked about this last week. We have the good and the bad in us, and the good and the bad fight for power, and we feed either the good or the bad. And the way we feed the good or the bad is by the choices we make about how we live our lives. Religion is at its best a way to keep us in good habits. <laughs> that, was little, um, that was a little messy. Let me say it again. Many of us know people who say they are spiritual but not religious because religion has gotten a bad rap. Well, I I think it might be well-deserved most of the time. Um, Religion is used as a tool of manipulation and influence, and it's often perverted. And, you know, hey, listen, I'm a religion guy. And so religion, I think, churches and other groups have often used the organization or the institution of religious bodies in ways that are not, shall we say, most godly. For many people, they know that God is real, but religion is flawed. And so they land in this space that has been termed spiritual but not religious. These are people who, when they go out on a hike or a bike ride, they feel the divine presence. They feel that spirit within them. But they don't want to go to church because church is just kind of ugly and messy and it's about rules and all the other stuff. They want just God. Here, I want to say very clearly, I can work with that. I think that's a good place to be. It's not the best place to be, but it's a fine place to be because it acknowledges the truth of God. Good, that's, that's a decent starting place. Where religion gets off track is when religion tries to make God smaller. That's not really what religion should do. What religion should do at its best is encourage people with practices, habits, behaviors that move them down the path toward God. I mean all that because religion can come off as just judgy and rules and do this, not that kind of stuff. What Revelation is really trying to uncover and unpack and expose is that our human condition, mm, our humanity, is vulnerable to the seductive temptations of evil in the world. And if left to our own devices, we might convince ourselves that those are good, that those are even godly and sacred and holy. Where religion comes in at its best is it is not about any one person. It is not really even about the ego It is about our humility, being subservient, being vulnerable, being willing to put ourselves second, put God and our neighbors first. Because when we do that and when we make active decisions in those ways, we are actually leaning into and growing closer to the truth of God, that goodness. And it's never one or the other all all the way. But as we will see in 17 to 18, Babylon is representative of a life that has chosen the world, not a life that has chosen God. Okay, sorry, tangent. Let's keep rolling. Um, I want to finish 18 today and not be like I was last week. So let's keep looking at this end of chapter 17, jump with me to verse 15. Let's keep going. And he said to me, right, this is, this is the angel, the waters that you saw where the whore is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts, to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So this great city is represented by the woman riding the beast. So in a sense, what we see with the woman and the beast is a representation of both the earth Urbanness of the world, the, the earthly power and wealth of of the world, and also the evil that fuels it. So you've got kind of the two levels here of earthly wealth and power, and the evil that fuels earthly wealth and power. Why this is important is that the woman will ultimately be destroyed and devoured by the beast. Humanity cannot overcome evil. At some point, evil consumes us. If we follow the path of the evil, wealth and power, then what we find is that we've been consumed by something that is not godly. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly. Money and goods and wealth aren't on their own evil, all right? This is very important because a lot of times people read the gospel and they think, okay, wealthy people are bad, or money is bad, or authority is bad. None of those things in their pure sense are bad. What is bad is when they represent something abusive and something that undermines and hurts others and we lean into it and fuel it and then begin to be consumed by it. You know, when we talk about giving to church, right, something that I am passionate about, when I ask people at this church or you if you go to a different church to give, tithe, The idea behind the giving is not that we need money. I mean, of course, there are things we do, like we maintain our buildings and we do ministries and we do outreach and all that sort of stuff. But at its core, giving money to the church is an act of faithfulness saying that earthly wealth and power is not our first priority. That is really what giving tithing means, is that we make a commitment to live beyond simply what the world tells us is important. So we might be good at earning money, but if we give first fruits, if we give sacrificially, if we give enough to where we've really committed ourselves in that gift, then the rest of the money is not the problem because what has happened is our first priority, our first choice, that behavior, that commitment has set us on the right path. And I believe that God works within that kind of gift so that more and more, we become the kind of generous, compassionate, giving people that will likely, you know, giving begets giving. It feels good to give. And as we give, we want to give more. We know we've got the capacity to give more as we give. And in that giving, we move closer to God. What we're talking about here is committing ourselves to wealth and power without any first step or first choice. If left to our own devices, that kind of wealth and power will consume us. So let's put this into uh, tangible reality right now in the world. For the first time ever in 2020, less than half of the adults in the US say they belong to a church. That's a horrible moment. (laughs) We've gotten to the point where we are less connected to church or faith communities than we've ever been at any point in the history of our country. And so it does not surprise me that we also find that we are more polarized politically than we have likely been at any recent history. Now I won't say ever, because I read enough to know that there have been points in time in our history where we've been very polarized. But the polarization that we see right now is a pretty unique kind of polarization. It's very much scapegoating and judgmentalism and ugliness that I think is almost unprecedented, I think certainly in America. I will clearly state that political and social polarization is a byproduct of people becoming more and more disconnected from communities of faith. The gift of religion, the gift of faith communities, is the constant reminder that it's not about us. That is perhaps the best that we can take away from God's message to us over time. The, The example we see in Christ and what the Spirit does in us if we allow it, we are reminded all the time it's not about us. Our humanity makes us think when we don't have a check, that it is actually all about us. And as we get more and more disconnected from faith communities and more and more disconnected from the reminder to be humble and to be loving and to be generous and to be kind, what happens is we go down these holes into political issues and they become for us the defining ideas of our life. And then Christianity becomes like icing on top of the cake or sprinkles. We put on Christianity when it feels right, but what has really begun to define us is the political ideology that separates us. That is a big problem. That is why I am so committed to a highly politically diverse congregation here at St. Michael, because our politics cannot be most important in our lives. They cannot be. And if you are sitting there thinking that I am wrong, I really, really want you to like look me in the eye, you know me, I hope you trust me enough to hear me say politics cannot be the root of our identity. Jesus was an equal opportunity offender he was able to offend all the politicians, not one side or the other, everybody. Because politics has a way of making us feel like every idea, every action, every group is either with us or against us. And what we get from God is so much better than that. God says we are to be for everyone. We are to love not only God, but every other person like we love ourselves. It is that healthy ego check that keeps us moving down the right path. Politics will make it all about you, all about me. Religion, faith, God helps us remember that it's all about everyone. It is all about one another in the world. Okay. I can keep rolling on that for too long. So I'm going to stop and say that we have finally come to the end of chapter 17. That's really why I wanted to not just cut it off last week, but really lean into it. Because chapter 18, chapter 18 is a little, I think, less complex about its impact on us. chapter 17. Chapter 17 is rich and deep and luscious and gives us so much meat that we can really chew on when it comes to the way that we live our lives. Chapter 18 is good. We're going to do it right now. I just don't need so much time. Okay, so pause. That's the end of the first section and I apologize. I forgot to tell you the sections of today's lesson. Um, We're going to do it in three sections. We just finished the first, which is the woman and the beast, kind of the completion of last week. And then there are two more sections for chapter 18, the fall of Babylon, and the judgment of Babylon. So we're gonna to get to the second part of today's lesson, the fall of Babylon, but I wanna pause, encourage questions, comments, anything you all might want to ask to help me kind of guide this lesson. So I'ma have a little more coffee, which people tell me all the time I shouldn't drink so much. I think I was a little hyper at Easter. Um, I was talking really fast. I try to slow down and not get so excited so that you can understand what I'm saying, (laughs) but I get excited. There's nothing I can do. All right. Any questions or comments, send them, put them in the chat, email Meredith. She'll get them to me. Okay. Let's keep going into chapter 18 with the fall of Babylon. Let's just kick it off with the first couple verses. Chapter 18, verse one. After this, I, John, saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. And then it goes on and on. Babylon falls. There is a moment of collapse where Babylon the Great, do you see what John wrote there? Babylon the Great has fallen. It's become a dwelling place of demons, foul spirits, and hateful beasts. The clear, the clarity with which Babylon falls is important. We're going to get to two very critical ideas about how Babylon falls. But first, I want to just talk about the idea of cities and countryside, or rural areas, urban and rural areas basically. Um, Today, I think, you know, 21st century, I think that we find urban areas to be places that are a little complicated, a little crowded, maybe even a little dirty depending on where you are. Complicated, right? And so those of us who live in cities, like me, we often romanticize now rural communities. right? Maybe state and national parks, right? Ooh, it's pretty. And you get to go out and you get in touch with nature and you get to kind of um, connect with the natural world and all that stuff. Or we seek to spend time in kind of undeveloped or underdeveloped areas because, again, it's kind of that romantic look. You know, here in Texas, it might be ranches or lake houses, maybe mountain cabins if you want to get up to Colorado or something like that. So we tend to live and work functionally in urban areas and yearn in some romantic way for the rural, rural areas where we get to almost. Reconnect, or renew, or refill, or something like that. I will say, just as an aside, I am such a city person. Um, I really don't like undeveloped areas. Nicole laughs at me all the time because whenever we go to some place like a mountain cabin, or we you know go out to some you know nice place to stay for a weekend or something like that, I will always say as we were driving in. A, How can you live out here? You know, I will pass houses, and there's like nothing around this one house. And I think, what? how is it possible that people live that remotely in that rural of a community? Because for me, sign me up, I'll take a city any day. Um, In the first century, people were probably a bit more like me, Um, but in the first century, there was a functional need for cities, and that was safety. Today in the 21st century we often feel like rural areas, particularly parks and, you know, lakes, mountains, that kind of stuff is is where we get to reconnect and feel good and it's it's renewing. In the first century, remote areas that are undeveloped were dangerous. People didn't want to be in the country when people would travel from city to city they would travel as quickly as they could they would travel the safest path they knew to travel because that's where thieves and robbers would lay in wait for travelers passing from city to city you know part of what we miss in our nativity stories is journeying you know Joseph and Mary journeying from Nazareth to Bethlehem was dangerous it's not only a hard journey because it takes days to do it, but it was a dangerous journey and Mary was pregnant. You know, we kind of miss a few of these nuanced ideas in biblical stories because for us, you know, a nice country road is like exactly where you want to drive on a pretty day, right? Windows down, radio on, wind blowing. I mean, it's it's romantic and it's great. Not so in the first century. It was a scary idea to travel city to city. So. All of that is meant by saying Babylon represented in the first century the great desire, right? It's safety, it's wealth, it's prosperity, it's security. It's all of those things that we might miss because it's not exactly the same in the 21st century. So I want to say all that before we get to Babylon's fall because it's important that we note just how much the city was regarded and how fundamental cities were to the health and safety of individuals. Um, Because we might miss that given our kind of personal opinions about cities. Um, Okay, let's keep going with verse six. Let's jump to verse six. Render to her as she herself has rendered and repay her double for her deeds, mix a double draft for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a like measure of torment and grief, since in her heart she says, I rule as a queen, I am no widow, and I will never see grief. John is talking here about Babylon. Render to her... That's the woman who represents Babylon, right? Render to Babylon what she has rendered. So in other words, Babylon represents wealth and power and authority in the city, and all of that wealth and power and authority is built on abuse and fornication and ugliness and all of that stuff that we heard about in chapter 17. And so as Babylon falls, what the angel is really saying here is render to Babylon what Babylon rendered to others, repay her. You know, so in a sense, she is now reaping what she has sown. So Babylon is getting her just desserts, so to speak. She was glorified, lived luxuriously, and said things like, I'm a queen. I am no widow, I will never see grief. In other words, all of this human stuff, I am above. And in that kind of egotism, Babylon has effectively signed her own death warrant. And so the destruction here is a giving back what Babylon gave to others. I think that's good enough for this section because we've got the judgment coming and that's going to be important. Um, Like I said, 18 is not quite as big. Um, I I just will reiterate, and I apologize for being redundant, but I'd rather say it a few extra times, this fall of Babylon has been interpreted over the centuries as a prediction of the fall of other people empires. So when Rome fell in the 5th century because of the Germanic invaders, people said, ah, John knew this would happen. Well, that's kind of that's dumb because we know that every city falls, right? I mean, at some point, every empire falls. Um, what John is, dis- is unpacking here about Babylon is getting at a very deep truth that when we cling to earthly power, earthly power will always fail us. Earthly power will always lose in the end to God's divine power. So John is not predicting the fall of Rome as like an oracle would. John is not doing, John is predicting the truth that is much deeper that anything we build as humans on earth, will ultimately go away. Anything we build in God's heavenly kingdom will last forever. That's what John's really getting at in this story. So, yes, people have used this to predict the fall of Rome, but that's really missing the real deep point, which is, Anything humans build is going to fall, anything. That's why we put our trust and our faith and we invest in God's kingdom, in God's vision for the future, not our own. Um, So let's look on for the judgment of Babylon. I see that Susie's asked a question um, to touch briefly on Isaiah 47 Um, She has a note from a previous study. Did I reference that we were gonna get to Isaiah 47 at some point? Um, Yes, okay. So Isaiah 47 here is really, John uses many of the prophets in explaining some of the deep truths around what will happen to Babylon. Um, Isaiah is used very often. Jeremiah is used very often. Um, I don't have right now notes explicitly about Isaiah 47, but Susie, what I will do is I'll take a look at some of the links that John makes between specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, But of course, there's a little bit of Daniel in there and I've referenced that along the way. I'll make a few notes about connections made to the old prophets for next week. So thank you for that. Um, Let's keep going to the last section of today's study, which is the judgment of Babylon. This one's got a bit more meat for us to chew on. Um, So we went through the first few verses of chapter 18. Now we're going to look at the majority of chapter 18, starting with verse 9. Here we go. Chapter 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves and human lives. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your dainties and all your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. We'll pause there. Babylon has fallen, and we see two, or I want to emphasize two important ideas about this section where we get the weeping and the mourning and the grief about Babylon falling, First, from the kings, and then we get it from the merchants, and it kind of goes on and on. I'm not going to read all that to you. You can read that on your own. But I thought these first two sections are good enough to give us the idea. And there are two important ideas I want to emphasize. The first is Babylon fell with great speed, and that's really important. We'll get to that. And the second is there's payment for luxury. In other words, There's a debt to be paid when one lives luxuriously. And so we're going to get to both of those ideas. The first is Babylon fell with great speed. So the fall of Babylon was very quick. We see at the end of verse 10, Alas, alas, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. In only one hour Babylon the great falls. Think of all the great cities that you have visited and how complex they are, right? You go to any major city of the world and there's a huge amount of complexity. I remember going to Chicago for the first time and taking that little river cruise, you know, the historic architecture cruise, which if you've never done that in Chicago is amazing. You should do it. But as we were on the boat, they were explaining to us the different levels of the city. You know, as Chicago was kind of built, you get this multi-level street system so in essence what you have at the top is just general cars right maybe people going to work but mostly these are people kind of coming in and out of the city then you've got below an entire doubling of the street system for all of the functional driving that would be where trash is picked up and where ambulances run and it's it was Fascinating. You can literally see it like a layer cake, like a trifle. And then you kind of go lower, and that's where you get maintenance and other stuff underneath the city that connects with the river. It was fascinating to me just how complicated they constructed it. And of course, above the top street level, you get the elevated train and on and on and on. Every city's got complexity that is remarkable. Somehow, the designers of the city, especially the best cities of the world, Thought through things like giving people wide sidewalks to be able to walk, you know, pedestrian. You know how some cities are pedestrian friendly, some cities, Dallas, unfortunately, are not. Um, But then cities try to fix weaknesses by creating public parks or public transit or easier housing or whatever. Cities are complicated. Babylon represents this incredible complexity, human invention. And here Babylon falls in one hour. It makes me think back to a book (laughs) that I read as a kid. You all may have read it called Alas, Babylon. Um, It was one of the early kind of nuclear holocaust books that were written. I want to say it was probably written around 1950. And the idea being post-World War II, as the U.S. and Russia began to develop these Nuclear bombs, the reality that our world could be destroyed in minutes, in an hour, became very real. And so this book was written about, it was actually written about a place very near where I grew up in Central Florida. um, After a nuclear holocaust, right, where the US and Russia send all their bombs and other people bomb and everything's kind of destroyed, you get these little pockets of places around the world that are untouched, so to speak. You don't have any nuclear fallout. People can actually live there. And it happened to be almost right where I was born and raised. And so it was a fascinating book for me to read. But this idea of the complexity of our human world being so temporary, so vulnerable, so... um, Delicate is important for us to grasp because, as I said, the point for John here is that we might build what we think is so impressive and so strong and so powerful and so important, and compared to God's reality, God's economy. Nothing we do will ever be as strong or as eternal. Babylon represents, in this vision, the absolute pinnacle of human achievement and still crumbles in one hour. It's interesting here that the complexity of Babylon is connected to its economy, right? I mean, we see the wealth of the world here when we're talking about the merchants, Babylon, gold, silver, jewels and pearls and fine linens, scented wood, ivory, bronze, iron, marble. Babylon represents the ultimate economy and the ultimate strength, and here it's gone in an hour. Um, What's also very important here, so the first idea here is the speed at which Babylon fell. The second is, as the wealth of the city is described, there is a little moment where we could just pass over it if if we don't note, that should carry a lot of weight for us. And that is the way in which the wealth of the world is created. So we see wealth expressed in many different ways here, right? I think that we all know either we've lived through it or we've been affected by it or we've read about it. Think of a market crash where people in moments, in an hour or a day, lose huge amounts of money. We know that kind of reality. Um, However, when we think about wealth and our economy, it's important that we acknowledge how that wealth and economy is built in the very truest sense. And we see a little note at the very end of verse 13 that I don't want to gloss over. So we see in verse 13. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, yada, yada, yada. All of these things that make sense to us, right? And we were thinking merchants, and we're thinking uh, economy, and buying, and selling, and wealth building, and all of that sort of stuff. And we see at the very end of verse 13, slaves and human lives. Ooh, I mean, that's, that's very interesting. Slaves, okay, I mean, I think that we can all acknowledge that, particularly in the first century, but I mean, even still around the world today, people are bought and sold in the classic sense of slavery. But then we see, and human lives. It's a very interesting note that is made here in John's storytelling of Babylon's fall. Put into context, Babylon was wealthy and powerful, and what John is saying here is that the wealth and the power were built upon certain ideas. We get all of the normal stuff that would probably occur to us if we were to create a list of how wealth and power is built, but then we get this note, slaves and human lives. It's the and human lives idea that I want to vet a bit and unpack. I don't think it should come as a shock to us unless we, unless we simply just want to ignore the truth um, that most wealth is built on the accumulation of profits from hard human labor done by people. Let me put that a different way. If you look at America, let's just look at America. Most of the wealth in America is absolutely rooted in money that was created within economies of human labor. Whether that was, you know, slavery and sharecropping and plantations, it could have been mills, you know, coal mines and steel mills and all that sort of stuff. I mean, at at multiple times in American history, there are people who, built huge amounts of wealth based on the human labor, the physical human labor of many, many people. That's effectively what, I mean, our economy is, right? You've got people who have a lot of wealth, a very small number of people who have a lot of wealth, and a very large amount of people who don't have much at all. The economies that we live in, I mean, again, I'll just Say we are here watching a video on a you know thousand dollar device um, that's being streamed, and we're all inside comfortable homes, wearing comfortable clothes. We know we're going to eat comfortably today. I mean, let's let's all agree that we are in the comfortable. When I say wealthy, I mean relative wealth of North Dallas. Okay, I know some of you are joining us from beyond. Hi, glad you're here. Um, Most of us are probably kind of right here in North Dallas. We are wealthy. Certainly some of us are wealthier than others, but when you look at Americans in general, we're doing very well. Most of our wealth is rooted in, maybe not we, but somewhere along the line has accumulated because there are a lot of people doing labor tasks for very little money. That is the way our economy is built. Let's put judgment aside and just say that is a true thing. Part of what John is leaning into here with the fall of Babylon is that same truth. Why I am bringing all that up is just like at the beginning of this lesson, it is important for us to genuinely wrestle with our lives and the way our lives impact other people. Most of the time, our lives impact other people in very passive, totally unconscious ways. We are not intentionally seeking to do anyone harm. We are not intentionally seeking to make anyone work harder than they should for too little to live in squalor, to live in vulnerability and insecurity. We're not consciously making those choices. But the way we choose to live our lives can have repercussions and ripples that hurt people unintentionally. I mean, let's just. How about this? Where, whenever you buy discount goods somewhere, right? I mean, I don't want to get too too personal here, but you know, when we go and try to save a dollar because we're going to buy some stuff at Walmart or Target instead of buying it somewhere else, somebody's making that stuff, right? And so, when we're looking to save on clothes or cleaning supplies or pff, whatever food especially, there are people who have given their time, their bodies to creating those products that we want to buy at discounted prices, which means that the people who are selling those products to us at discounted prices have to squeeze somewhere and they're going to squeeze the people who have less authority and less power and less wealth. It's the way it works. What I want us to be willing to do, be courageously willing to do, is to hear John's words about the fall of Babylon as an invitation for us to wrestle with unintentional effects of our choices in the world. Y'all, this is a hard thing to do, okay? I know I am pushing buttons And I know that there are certainly people watching this who have rolled their eyes or who have turned away, I hope not turned this off. Because the more we have, the easier it is for us to not need God. That's where the rubber hits the road. That is my genuine worry in my role in this church, in this community, is that the more we have, the more we expect to have. And the more we have, the less we need God. Babylon represents that reality expanded. Babylon represents that path, that lifestyle, those life choices exponentially. We're not there yet, and I don't want us to be. I want us to read stories like this chapter of Revelation and allow the hit, allow the challenge to the way we live to actually move us closer to God. That's the best of a Bible study is not that we just affirm how awesome we are. That's not what we're supposed to do. Bible study is meant to kind of tweak and challenge and mold and push and squeeze and nudge us into a better way of living, a more God-centric, godly way of living. That's really what I think is the best of this. You know, Revelation is a cosmic scale where God ultimately frees people from captivity. If we look at the Bible, God is freeing people from captivity over and over and over again. We get this first paradigm of freeing from captivity in the story of Moses and the Israelites in Egypt. But the idea that God seeks to free people from their bondage of captivity is what happens over and over again. What Jesus does is Jesus comes to free us from the bondage and captivity of what this world can do to us unintentionally, subconsciously, and accidentally. God's calling us, especially through the life of Jesus, to a more intentional choice about how we live, Because how we live and the choices we make define who we are and who we should be is God-centric. We should be generous and loving and kind and compassionate. We should be the kind of people who seek to help, not hurt, and the people who not only don't hurt, but the people who defend those being hurt as disciples of Jesus, this is the call that Christ puts on our lives. This is the challenge, the invitation, the promise that we get from Christ is that when we put God at the center, love at the core of everything we do as much as we are able to, we will not fall victim to the evil of the world. I started off this lesson by talking about the seduction of the world. That seductive nature is really what John is writing about in this vision. The ultimate good of this letter is to help us resist the temptations that are so sweet, that are so powerful, that lead us away from God. If we can do that, more and more together, we are actually becoming the people that God created us to be, the people God hopes we will be. And then we resist what will ultimately fall and we cling to God alone. Man, that's good stuff. Revelation, who knew, It's so good. All right, everybody, we've reached the end of our study today. I hope that it meant a lot to you. Let us know what you thought. Um, Ask some questions. Email Meredith throughout the week. We will collect these questions together and we'll be back again next week, chapter 19. We've only got a few weeks to go. Don't miss it. I'll talk to you all soon. God bless you and happy Easter.